Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 17th of August, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Derish. And we're delighted to be joined both by Debbie Evans and Alex Thompson. Alex, reporting from north of the border, just to keep the audience guessing as to who's who yes. and where is where. Indeed. Well, look, uh, let's get started with, uh, with Andrew Bailey. And of course, we should never forget that he is... Uh, his main priority is to get inflation back to 2%, but unfortunately it's not heading in that direction anytime soon. Uh, and the UNS yesterday uh, released the latest statistics with the CPI up to 10.1%. Uh, the Office for National Statistics had this to say, a wide range of price rises drove inflation up again this month. Food prices rose notably, particularly bakery products, dairy, meat, and vegetables, uh, which was also reflected in higher takeaway prices because takeaways are the most important thing on the menu. Uh, price rises in other staple items such as pet food, toilet rolls, toothbrushes and deodorants also pushed up inflation in July. So Anton LeVay, otherwise known as uh, Nadim Zahawi, the Chancellor of Exchequer said, I understand that times are tough and people are worried about increases in prices that countries around the world are facing. So uh, that's good. Uh, and he said getting inflation under control is his top priority as well. And so the government is taking action through strong, independent monetary policy, responsible tax and spending decisions and reforms to boost productivity and growth. Um, so assuming you're uh, actually still feeling well, Brian, what do you make of that? Well, I'd, I'm just smiling slightly at the idea of independent monetary policy, because ultimately anything monetary is controlled by a cabal of banks. And I don't think um, Mr. Zahawi is in control of anything. And he's certainly not independent of those banks. Uh, well, I think that's I think the uh, the podium there says it all, really. Well, the, the city, city of, of London. London yes, yeah. exactly. But let's uh, let's move on to this, because uh, here's the uh, uh, graph showing the oil crude oil price over the last number of months of over a year now, around a year. Uh, and uh, well, I just wanted to highlight the part on the right hand side. So let's uh, put this on. We've had a 25% fall in the cost down from about 125 pounds, uh, dollars a, a barrel uh, in June to uh, what's that, 93 uh, on the 15th, which is Monday. Uh, it's, about, it's about a 25% uh, fall in the price of crude oil. Um, so I wonder what's been going on at the petrol pumps uh, in the same period. So uh, the only source for this I have is the RAC. Uh, and unfortunately, you can't really change the uh, the scale. scale of their graph. But anyway, let's just have a look at the, the same period. Uh, and uh, well, oh dear, uh, the price at the pumps has only fallen 9% uh, in the same period. Now, the oil companies uh, may claim that, well, only a proportion of the price that you pay at the pumps is actually the uh, price of the petrol itself. The rest is duty and so on. Well, okay, uh, then maybe we could look at the previous period where the price was rising and see what happened there. So let's, let's do that. So uh, let's have a look at the this period here. Now that period is the 14th of April to the 1st of June and prices rose 15% in that time. So um, uh, Alex, uh, just take a wild stab in the dark. Uh, what do you think if prices rose at the pumps by 15% uh, in that period, what do you think happened uh, with crude oil prices? Um, logic would dictate that they rose, wouldn't it? Well, let's just see by how much. So let's bring this graph back on and look at the same period. And well, in the same period, the crude oil price rose by 1.75%. So uh, the question then is, um, you know, we understand what the causes of inflation are, but of course, one of the 
the major input cost for many, uh, for just about everything, is the cost of transport and the cost of fuel. Uh, and when the uh, price is being manipulated in this way uh, at the retail level, then that, of course, has a massive impact on the cost of living for everybody. So we may have an inflation problem, which we do. We, we also have uh, the, the uh, well, let's call it the corruption of, uh, the of companies, the cartels that are making absolutely huge profits in the meantime. So, um, yes, what more can we say? I'm, I'm just smiling, Mike, because, of course, you haven't mentioned uh, President Putin in this um, information at all. You've stuck to the facts and evidence and put it up on screen. And this shows that what's been going on, uh, all the claims that everything is to do with uh, that nasty man Putin and the war in Ukraine. This is this is complete fantasy. Yes. Now, just to finish this off, I'd just like to point out uh, uh, that David Scott and I have recorded another episode of Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree. Uh, this is episode 10. It's on the front page of the UK Column website uh, at the moment, and it's talking about inflation. So if you haven't listened to that yet, uh, please do. Now, let's move on quickly to uh, all-course mortality and health issues. Uh, and I just wanted to highlight this uh, yet again, because obviously I've been away for two weeks, uh, and this graphic probably hasn't been on during that time, but uh, I thought we should bring it up uh, and let's have a look at what's going on in recent weeks uh, and continuing uh, mortality uh, above the five-year average, um, according to the Office for National Statistics. So what are they saying? Well, the number of deaths above the five-year average in private homes uh, was 28% above, uh, in hospitals 13% above, in care homes uh, 6% above, uh, and uh, in other uh, sort of areas uh, outside of those, um, it, there was a slight fall. They're below the five-year average. So the total number of deaths in the UK in terms of excess mortality. So uh, in the week ending the 5th of August 2022, which is week 31, was 12,126 excess deaths. Or sorry, the number of deaths registered, which was 13.9% above the five-year average. So that's 1,480 excess deaths in one week. Uh, and of those deaths, they're saying only 799 uh, were related to COVID-19. This is what they claim. So, uh, Debbie, uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on this because we just have continuing, uh, just before I get your thoughts, we have just this continuing uh, excess mortality, which nobody seems to care about. And just to sort of illustrate this, let's have a look at this article in the mail this morning. Uh, it takes a lot of effort to make it work, is the quote, uh, bikini-clad uh, Haley Bieber reflects on our marriage to Justin and says their, quote, serious health issues mean they have, they've had to figure things out. Let's just take a quick quote from this. Uh, the model, 25, and her pop singer, Love, have both faced serious health issues recently. Haley suffered a mini stroke in March and Justin was diagnosed with Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, uh, which led, him, uh, led to him suffering temporary facial paralysis. Both of these situations, of course, have been linked to COVID-19 vaccines. But does the Daily Mail investigate why they've had these health issues? Not for a second. But in the meantime, uh, as you recently were writing on the UK Column website, Debbie, uh, the situation continues to get worse with A&E. So this is the I newspaper this morning. Record-breaking ambulance waiting times could get significantly worse in winter, Chiefs warn. Uh, around 13,000 patients who could be released are not discharged from hospital due to lack of social care uh, and so on. But the point is, uh, we have excess mortality continuing week after week after week, thousands of excess deaths, 
Uh, nobody commenting on this in the mainstream press. No investigation as to what's causing it. No investigation to the link to vaccines and the implications or the effect of that uh, uh, shutdown of the NHS in the meantime. No, exactly. And, you know, there's been a, a lot of reports of uh, death unknown, cause unknown. That seems to be the latest uh, the card that they're playing. And we should also remember that the MHRA are now only giving the data for serious adverse reactions every month. So it's like people with serious adverse reactions are being completely wiped out, almost erased. And um, we've also got an increase of sudden adult death syndrome. So all of these other things are going on as well. But clearly, we seem to be getting reports, and I'm yet to confirm them, but there seem to be a lot of reports from doctors in A&E saying that there are far more deaths taking place in A&E, presumably from patients having to wait in ambulances or patients that are dying in ambulances or at home before they've even received an ambulance. So it'd be interesting to see the ONS data on how many people are dying in A&E or in ambulances. Uh, well, unfortunately, I'm not aware that they actually provide that level of breakdown. They'll only say whether it's at home or in hospital. And at the moment, at home is is still out ahead with uh, in hospital coming second. Uh, so we'll certainly have a look and see whether we can track that down though. Yeah, I, I just, if I may, just wanted to add in here that um, a little while ago, I was able to interview um, a gentleman who'd been a senior, um, we'll call it mainstream media executive, um, very well versed in all matters to do with the top end of uh, media reports. And he indicated that a document had been sent to um, all of the media in UK saying effectively that they could not adversely report on matters to do with vaccines. I am hoping to get hold of the document, which he's referred to. I don't have it at the moment, but I'm going to throw that in as a anecdotal statement that it's clear that the, the press and the media are suppressed. You're not allowed to talk about vaccine adverse reactions. Um, okay, Debbie, great news, and I'm sure you'll uh, you'll applaud this in a second. But uh, we've got a new vaccine for COVID-19 from Moderna. It's called Spikevax Bivalent Original Slash Omicron, um, and uh, so this is an updated version of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine uh, that targets two coronavirus variants and is known as a bivalent uh, vaccine. Um, so this has now been approved by the MHRA. Uh, this is what uh, June Rain had to say about that. Uh, she said, I'm pleased to announce the approval of the Moderna bivalent booster vaccine, which is found, which was found in the clinical trial to provide a strong immune response against uh, Omicron BA1 variant, as well as the original 2020 strain. Uh, we have in place a comprehensive safety surveillance strategy for monitoring the safety of all UK uh, approved COVID-19 vaccines. And this will include the vaccine approved today. Um, so, Debbie, uh, undoubtedly, you're delighted with this news, and I'm sure you're reassured by June Rain's uh, comments there. Oh, of course, the safety regulator that isn't a safety regulator and who regulates the regulator. Uh, yeah, this is the what they call the bivalent. So this, this um, vaccine, which is actually gene technology in my book, so we shouldn't even be calling it a vaccine. But uh, this solution is meant to deal with the original uh, COVID variant and the Omicron, the BA4 and the BA5. Now, we must remember that this is only being rolled out in the UK. No other country is, is getting this as, as of yet. So the MHRA are experimenting 
with the British population first. And let's not forget, too, that Moderna have invested one billion into the UK because they're going to set up their next generation. And this is what this vaccine is. It's the next generation. No, I shouldn't say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said vaccine. The next generation injection and the vaccine manufacturing um, and the biggest, biggest centre outside of the USA is going to be here in the United Kingdom. So um, this is extremely worrying. It's going to be offered to the over 50s first. You're not going to be guaranteed to get it. And if you don't get it, you'll get the ordinary Pfizer or Moderna and children will get the, the Pfizer paediatric uh, jab. Well, let's just uh, let's just come on to that, because in parallel with this announcement, the JCVI have have announced the uh, the, the plans for the autumn booster. So this is the uh, autumn booster advice for adults aged 18 years and above. Moderna mRNA spike vax bivalent that we've just been talking about. Uh, other alternative is the Moderna mRNA spike vax original. Uh, and then there's the Pfizer BioNTech mRNA original vaccine. And then they say that in exceptional circumstances, the Novavax Matrix M adjuvant wild type vaccine uh, may be used when no alternative clinically suitable UK approved COVID-19 vaccine is available. Uh, and for uh, people aged 12 to 17, you're, and you notice it's people aged 12 to 17, this is their words, not ours, uh, not children. People aged 12 to 17, uh, then Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA original wild type vaccine. For people aged five to 11 years, it's the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA original wild type vaccine pediatric formulation, as Debbie says. So uh, the language uh, being changed yeah. here very much. Uh, of course it is, because the, the change of the language is, is part of the applied political psychology to ensure that this stuff is drilled into people's heads. Um, uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, and then just to, just to end this off, uh, everybody will be glad to know that uh, uh, the government released an update on the vaccination project against monkeypox in the UK. Now that more than 25,000 people have already been vaccinated to contain the monkeypox outbreak in the UK. Uh, so that's, uh, that's great news too, uh, uh, Debbie. Um, oh, yes, it's fantastic <laughs> news. And let's not forget that this monkeypox vaccine is a smallpox vaccine, smallpox. It's not what's designed for monkeypox. As far as I'm aware, only two people have died with monkeypox and they were very seriously ill patients in Spain, as far as I'm aware. Yes, Alex, thoughts? Uh, just to throw in that I have seen at least one photograph from Michigan of a man posing very beamingly in his car with a monkeypox vaccination card. And it has four courses or slots for four courses of the jab. And he's uh, had just the first one. So that may be technically inaccurate. That's, uh, it's probably going to become quite widespread that people have said uh, are saying that they have got their monkeypox jabs. OK, great. Uh, well, Debbie, let's uh, bring you on some of the detail that you've uh, given us. And uh, you're particularly pleased uh, that you've been invited back into the MHRA board meeting circle. This is a pretty exclusive club. Oh, I'm delighted. I mean, you can imagine I was absolutely, my eyes lit up when I saw the Eventbrite. If anybody wants to join me, I'd be more than happy for you to join. Um, I shall be asking questions at the MHRA board meeting. Haven't had answers to the uh, previous two board meetings, but we'll give it another go. But um, if you want to, to, to register up for it, it's on September the 20th from 10.30, 10 I think, till 12.45. So book your ticket now. 
Okay, excellent. And um, of course, you're going to be able to ask a number of things, or at least we hope you are if you're not censored into silence. But where are the yellow cards? This is the key issue. Well, yes, and thank you very much indeed to Jane, who's written into us to say that um, after listening to what we were saying before about the fact that some people's yellow card reports appear to have been deactivated by the MHRA, um, Jane herself found that hers has disappeared. Um, so we've, 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 we're in contact with her and we've advised her to contact um, Dame June Rain and the MHRA to find out where her yellow card report is. And of course, um, we'll be featuring a, an amazing gentleman tomorrow, Wayne, um, who's vaccine injured. And he had written to, the, to Dame June Rain as well to say, I'm still here, basically. How are you going to help me? What are you going to do? Um, as of yet, they've sent him back a letter from Alison Cave um, asking him a load more questions, um, which really he's extremely weak. So it, it's it, navigating all of this correspondence with the MHRA is difficult. And then she ends off the email, oh, you know, basically signed off. If you've got any other questions, get in contact, but no offer of help. So these people are, are literally being erased. The MHRA, as I've said before, are only publishing their data every month. Uh, people aren't seeming to talk about the serious adverse reactions anymore, and it's as if, as if they don't want them to exist. Well, we still very much want to focus in on people that are suffering with serious adverse reactions, and we intend to stay on the case with the MHRA, the Commission for Human Medicines, and anyone else that will listen to us. Okay, Debbie, and of course, this, this business about uh, the government or the MHRA paying no attention to the vaccine injury, this, this is sort of growing. So you, you've got um, a couple of statements or a couple of letters in relation to the MHRA and vaccine injury here. Yeah, well, this is, this is I think, the reply that uh, Wayne has received as a result of constantly contacting the MHRA and saying how, how ill he was and how he'd received no help, uh, nothing with regards to the vaccine damage payment, not even any acknowledgement, nobody had been to see him. And so that was his response and he's still sitting there waiting for answers, still ignored and invisible, but not to us. Right. And of course, we can stress to our audience once again that it's not, not just members of the public that are being stalled by the MHRA because they're also refusing to ask questions from ministers who should get a more or less instantaneous reply. So the MHRA has become a law unto itself, it would seem. And uh, you've also got this one, Moderna Super Jab launched UK first. Um, so more and more vaccines coming through the uh, pipeline, it appear. Well, yeah, that was again what Mike was mentioning earlier, this uh, the Moderna jab. But just to add very quickly onto that, because we've, we've already really discussed it, but Pfizer have got one lined up for us too. So, uh, and let's not forget Pfizer. Pfizer are Pfizer BioNTech. And the BioNTech is very important in all of this. So they've got a bivalent coming up as well. But meanwhile, okay. we've got more, we, we've got on the flip side, we've got Evusheld, which we've been talking about on the column for absolutely ages. Um, the MHRA actually approved Evusheld, but now all of a sudden they've put it on hold. Um, they seem to be talking about the fact that they don't think that it's suitable for Omicron and therefore 
you know, it's not going to be cost effective. Nobody's talking about the safety effectiveness of this because this is actually an antiviral monoclonal antibody. So this is, in my opinion, a very dangerous injection. But apparently it costs £1,500 per year per patient and the cost effectiveness is not, not seen to be very good. So they're shelving it for the minute. But that's meant to be only for vulnerable people, worryingly. Okay, thank you for that. And of course, polio is uh, is now very much the in thing. So polio and wastewater is your header here from Yahoo News. Well, uh, yeah, again, all of a sudden now we have to take urgent, urgent action, um, according to the UK HSA, and we have to vaccinate um, our children from one till nine because there's been uh, specimens of polio found in wastewater. Now, all children, irrespective of vaccine status, will be targeted specifically in Barnet, Brent, Camden, Enfield, Hackney, Haringey, Islington and Waltham Forest. And then I can see it rolling out some more. So regardless of your child's status, they will be offered the IPV, which is called the inactivated polio vaccine. Now, what puzzles me is that they've detected these samples in wastewater. But as everybody knows, I live in raw sewage. You know, we get regular repeated sewer floods. And I know we'll talk about that later and maybe an extra. But we live in sewer floods, raw sewage. And I don't see Professor Christopher Whitty at my door. I don't see Southwest Water at my door or Cornwall Council at my door worried because I'm surrounded by raw sewage. And yet we've picked up one or two cases and now we have to vaccinate our children one to nine i mean am is am i being unreasonable or or am i just having a a mad moment here i can't see the logic well no, no, neither debbie the problem is that when the world becomes crazy enough and that's the situation with uk at the moment it's difficult for any normal reasonable person to get their head around the complete junk that's coming out from the government and the NHS and the Department of Health. So a lot more to come out about the uh, pitiful state of uh, the UK's wastewater and, uh, and uh, flood defence system. Uh, but this is a, a really a second segment here, because if people want to know um, where health is going in UK, it is not going to be about people in clean uh, starch linen being tended by sympathetic nurses. Um, we are heading for something which is a lot more dark than that. And you're picking up here on, uh, well, you've called it not science fiction, it's science fact. And the World Economic Forum, of course, pops into this one, tracking how our bodies work. Yeah, well, I mean, this, this really is taking pharma into a whole new realm. And what I was looking at was the fact that big pharma, as we know it, seems to be shifting into med tech. And this is how we're going to be monitoring our bodies, this internet of bio nano things, this internet of things, as they call it. So what I've been looking at is how big pharma, like AstraZeneca and Pfizer, et cetera, how they're going to morph into this future medicine, medicine from within with sensors, uh, voice microphones, um, swiping on a screen, your fine motor skills, all of these things are coming in, in into our lives 
like now. <laughs> I mean, we're not going to be talking to humans when we ring 999 or 111. We're going to be speaking to bots. We're not going to be needing to go for a nasopharyngeal swab to be diagnosed with COVID. It will be diagnosed by our voice. So we'll have vocal like bots, chats, chat markers, biomarkers to diagnose us. So just by our voice, they'll diagnose us and all of these sensors. So this is technology going crazy and it's coming here soon. So I just wanted to highlight that. Um, and yes, you might have to read out that uh, for me, Brian, because it's a bit right. small on the screen. Well, this... I right, right. Here. Yeah, go for it. So it says, for example, microphones can be used to detect voice biomarkers uh, fine motor skills can be tested by swiping and typing on touch screens and electro electrocardiogram sensors in smartwatches uh, can measure heart rate uh, variabilities to detect conditions such as uh, atrial fibrillation. Uh, I mean, this is uh, uh, should be something which, uh, you know, if we're uh, being monitored uh, for, for a health perspective, uh, should be a positive thing, but Debbie, but in fact, what this is being used for is is biosurveillance and gathering data, and you know we I don't think we can separate this from the uh, from the data protection regime which the government is bringing in, which is allowing data to be shared on a much more broad basis, including our medical data, um, and they're effectively creating an entire new industry here. Yeah, they, they absolutely are. And, you know, medical devices and wearables and biosensors and all of this new tech that we see coming in is going to be worth $64 billion by 2024. So this is a massive, massive industry and a whole new way. I mean, we are literally taking away human contact and we'll have no hospitals. And, and, and as you'll see, AstraZeneca, uh, the big pharma company that it is already now investing in hospitals at home in a company called Humor. So we can see Humor. I've just, yeah. I've just actually recorded that in my head. So yes, um, but this is the way that we're going. We're going into big pharma are going to merge with these med tech companies so that pills, it's called beyond the pill, so that pills as we remember them are gonna be a thing of the past. So this is a whole new, whole new paradigm shift. Yeah, okay. But Okay, we're just um, we're just having a little look for videos at the moment, um, but I, I'm just going. I'll say to you, Debbie, that uh, it's clear that we've got a regulator, the MHRA, that is now fully supporting the commercial development of all these all these new systems. It's not as if the MHRA is sitting in the wings saying, "Well, we've got to be very careful as what's coming up, and will the public be safe." The, pub, the MHRA boasts in its own board meetings that it's going to be a global regulator of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the MH, what we have to remember is the MHRA aren't just the medicine regulator. They are the medical devices regulator. And we've just had a whole new legislation laid down with regards to medical devices. So whether you're using a wheelchair, a walking stick, whether you've got a biosensor, an electronic tattoo, a microchip, a pacemaker, these are all medical devices. And the MHRA have got ultimate control and power over all of them. Yeah. OK, thank you for that. Now, we've got two little video clips here. They're very short. They're indicative of what's coming. One, one is about um, the use of people's voice. The other is about so-called wobots. Um, 
I think we've got them uh, sorted out now. Let, let's play and see what we get. Need to talk when you're irritated or stressed out? Meet Wobot, who's ready to listen day or night. Wobot is an app on your phone that can help you through life's challenges. Whether you're anxious, overwhelmed, or ugh, just mad, Wobot can help you get things off your chest and tackle your problems. Just start a conversation with Wobot anytime and tell Wobot what's bothering you. This is your safe space to chat, a judgment-free zone where Wobot will help you figure things out and give you useful tips and tools to feel better. And maybe tell you a dorky joke or two. Talking to Wobot can actually help you work through your thoughts and emotions. Research has shown that people can feel better after just a couple of weeks. Wobot, ready to talk whenever you are. I'm not sure that I can think of anything that's more dehumanizing. Well, I'm just going to pass that one over to Alex because I look at it, we're not dealing with a cartoon. This is, this is utterly demonic that we've got a distressed human being talking to a, a cartoon supported by some form of AI system created by who knows who or what. Alex, this is troubling stuff, isn't it? It is, Brian, because it's taking everyone of any intellectual or moral level that they were born with and bringing them down, as has long been the technocrat's dream, to the level of uh, predictable robotic so-called intelligence. So at the end of the clip you played, uh, the young adult uh, is dancing around with the same moronic semi-cartwheels as the robot was. And my host here is just a couple of streets from the University of Glasgow. I was driving past the university yesterday and saw great big billboards for people to talk to anyone, at least it was humans in this case, talk to anyone day or night for your emotional support. And uh, my host said, oh yes, the students, they're all on board with the latest agendas. He said, uh, we've been handing out leaflets there uh, on behalf of uh, anyone who's concerned about preserving our liberties during COVID. And he said the students were so offended, at least the vocal minority within them, that the police Scotland uh, was called and a riot van turned up and said, you're offending the poor dears, you're blowing their brains up. Of course, that's not the full uh, verbatim of what the Glaswegian police said, but this is the end state of what we're describing here. People are becoming more comfortable speaking in uh, feely language to devices that have no feelings than they are speaking to people. Yeah, and ultimately that's going to destroy brains and I would suggest increase mental illness. But let's, let's listen to or watch the, the uh, very short clip on, about the voice indicator. When you're unwell, it can affect certain organs. Being unwell can affect your voice because all these organs are involved in producing the sound. Therefore, signals from your voice can predict symptoms. These are called vocal biomarkers. In future, identifying vocal biomarkers will allow doctors to treat disease more effectively. 50-year-old Jack has type 1 diabetes which requires him to use an insulin pump to manage his condition. Managing his condition causes him to suffer with anxiety and depression. Jack's doctor refers him to a psychologist. He monitors Jack's mental health by getting him to make a weekly voice recording on the smartwatch app Jack already uses to monitor his blood glucose. 
To help people like Jack, we're creating a multilingual voice database. First, we need to make recordings so we can process and analyse the voice. Next, we extract thousands of audio features from the recording. We also convert it into a spectrogram. These are then fed into AI models to predict whether the individual has a certain symptom or disease. This involves collecting voice recordings and data through a survey on the Coli Voices app. Anyone over the age of 15, regardless of health status, can participate. All you need to do is answer a health questionnaire and provide five short voice recordings. Participation is anonymous. The more diverse the data, the more inclusive the digital health solution will be. We need data from males and females of all ages who speak different languages with different accents. Donate your voice and share this video with your friends and family today. Well, there, Mike. That's that's health. <coughs> sorry, <laughs> health security, isn't it? Absolutely incredible, uh, Debbie. Just some final thoughts on that. Do you know what? I'm not even going to waste any time on my thoughts because. Yes. Does my face say it all? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Your uh, support, your financial support, very much needed and uh, would be very much appreciated because uh, that's what keeps us going. Uh, or you could pick something up uh, at the UK Column shop. Uh, but uh, also, please share any material that you find on the various platforms because we need that as well. Okay, well, uh, we're just going to hand back to Alex here because you were the man on the spot. But uh, an excellent turnout at the Motherwell Scotland meeting. Uh, so we've got a couple of uh, images here. Uh, you had to move to a bigger hall, I understand. Yes, we did. And we went upstairs to the rather grand hall that you can see there. There's me in mid-rhetorical pose. Um, and there was, I think you can advance to yet another photograph of a, a happy-looking audience. I took this. I had to use a panoramic shot. It's not a vast audience. I'm not uh, over-inflating, but it's, it's a very welcome sight. There's all these happy people came. This is in the uh, crammed downstairs hall before we decided to move up to the bigger one at the Glow Centre in Motherwell. It's fairly central for Scotland, so we had people from all over. Uh, the furthest, actually, was someone travelled down from Laird in Sutherland, which has got to be a five-hour drive and involve an overnight stay. And there was a Caithness viewer who said that they were intending to come but couldn't. So that's right, right from the top near John O'Groats. So extremely encouraging. Uh, the recordings that we did Probably won't be optimum sound quality, either David's or mine, but we'll see what we can do with them uh, because you know, this, this has triggered quite a lot of interest. And I posted it to my Telegram channel, Eastern Approaches, and immediately got questions about when am I coming to Northern Ireland, the south of England and Wales. So um, it's difficult to fit these things in, but we don't take it lightly when people say they would love to have a UK column event in their area. Uh, of course, bear in mind it takes planning. So, for example, um, and I think you'll put the slide on now, I'm going to give yet another talk tonight again with David. This one is formally chaired by Eddie Maguire, uh, the former head of CND Scotland, if I recall correctly. And it's at the Billiards Hall in the Pierce Institute near Govan subway station in Glasgow starting at seven. I'll be speaking on the uh, theme that Britain needs to secede from NATO. And yes, I deliberately use the word secede. I'll be explaining why this evening. That starts at seven. But this really takes quite a lot of time out of our schedule. So um, uh, with the exception of Wayne's uh, very important testimony, which has to go up on the website tomorrow, uh, we've been, between me and Mike, uh, travelling uh, a little slower on putting stuff up, but people shouldn't despair. 
everything, including Debbie's weekly excellent health blog, will come uh, online as it should within a couple of days. Okay, Alex, thank you for that. And uh, we'll also get our advert in for Alternative View. Now, tickets uh, sales are increasing, which is very good, but we're really going to say to people, if you haven't got on board with this event, UK Column hosting um, uh, a live stream web event from the UK Column studio, but we are very, very keen that this goes well because it will allow us to help the Alternative View team, Ian Crane's old team, to kickstart the live events and people have really enjoyed those so if you haven't bought tickets yet please do support it this is a kickstarter uh, but what we're aiming for is the big live events and um, we've alluded to the fact that tomorrow at one o'clock we're going to be playing out the interview that debbie and i did with a gentleman called wayne who's unfortunately suffered vaccine adverse reactions so that will be a live stream interview at one o'clock look out for that one it's uh, very informative, very emotional. Um, okay, uh, there's been a bit of coverage. Alex has talked about this over the last few weeks of uh, Dutch farmers. Uh, well, we have a little bit of video here now of uh, a similar uh, protest in Germany. Um, so uh, this was on Monday, a uh, huge convoy of farmers, 400 tractors uh, rolled into Bonn uh, and they attempted to, well, they did uh, surround the Federal Ministry of Agriculture uh, that's still in Bonn, uh, and they were protesting the EU's uh, so-called climate policy, uh, and that's very much similar to what uh, the Dutch farmers were doing as well, uh, and they are absolutely in such uh, in solidarity with the Dutch farmers. Uh, so um, signs saying things like, we're here again, no farmers, no food, no future, green ideology has brought farmers to their knees, uh, and so on. So, Alex, I don't know if you've any thoughts on this, but uh, it's good to see people starting to take this type of action on a broader basis. It is. And people have to bear in mind just what kind of risks the German farmers, and I've seen similar things with Belgian farmers right there outside the European Commission building in Brussels, that they're taking quite some risks because these are trigger-happy countries with water cannon, a theme we'll get back to, I think, um, in, in just a couple of minutes with regard to the Netherlands, but even more so Germany and Belgium. You really can get yourself battened or shot uh, in these countries far more readily than you would in Britain uh, or most English-speaking countries. So uh, it, it shows that they're at the end of their tether. And uh, one of the uh, display uh, the messages displayed on the rear of one of those tractors that you played just now said, uh, please bear with us, we'd rather be at home right now as well. And of course they would, but they, they see no option but to get out on the streets. But if we go to the next country to the east, Poland, uh, we have in a different, more geopolitical frame, more indications of the, the unhappiness on the old continent of Europe. The Warsaw Voice, uh, an organ for uh, readers of English uh, following Polish news, reports that the deputy speaker of the lower house of parliament, the same uh, Richard Telecki, uh, has written an opinion piece in a newspaper accusing a German-dominated uh, Brussels bureaucracy of imposing its selfish interests on the entire European Union. So this isn't just any old senior politician. This man is the leader of the governing faction, so the equivalent of the, the majority leader uh, in the same, the Polish uh, lower lower chamber. And the same article goes on to criticise NATO in fairly similar terms to, to what I shall be doing in Govern this evening. Uh, but he's, he's predicting uh, uh, the accelerated disintegration of the EU. That's actually the, the majority leader uh, of, of a parliament in an, in an EU member state, a very 
substantially populous one as well. Uh, moving further east, uh, we've now got up uh, another of the podcasts that I recorded on location in Armenia earlier this summer. This one is with Karnik Sarkisyan, who at one stage had the title of Prime Minister of the Government in Exile, so a government, a, a body claiming a, a territory which it doesn't have access to, but a, a legal right to. He was the Government in Exile Prime Minister of Armenia, and he's gone on to have a very much more rounded and philosophical view of why his people, the Western Armenians in what's now Eastern Turkey, have never been allowed to have a state. Uh, and so we go into a lot of detail on that. And I think if you tap that again, you will bring up a map showing, there we are, uh, that President Woodrow Wilson of the United States and all the, the powers victorious in the recently finished First World War uh, agreed with the Armenian delegation uh, and agreed it uh, at the Treaty of Sevres in 1920 that Armenia should look like that. And as Karnik Sarkisyan put it, the fingers of Britain before and after that event, made sure that they didn't get uh, what they were promised. So uh, this is of quite uh, in quite major significance, I would say, and of interest to people not just who want to follow Middle Eastern history, uh, but who want to know just how uh, Britain does things in the world through its soft power right now. Uh, and we should just say that's on the UK Column website at the moment. It is, and it's also available directly on SoundCloud. Uh, if people want to subscribe, that's soundcloud.com slash UK Column. The channel name for that is UK Column Live, which is perhaps confusing to some, but you'll find that as an embed if you go to the front page, ukcolumn.org. And here is the Dutch report I alluded to a moment ago from the Algemeen Dagblad. People may recall the footage, we won't show it again, uh, of a Czech young lady uh, who were stand happened to be standing on top of a, um, a concrete feature overlooking a car park when there was protests verging on a riot in Eindhoven in January. This uh, young lady, Denisa, got a direct hit with a water cannon. And uh, it's only taken nearly nine months, uh, but the Alchemin Dachblatt is reporting that there is going to be prosecution of that female police officer who directed the water cannon at, at her. Uh, the uh, public prosecutor, the OM in the Netherlands, at the moment, rather controversially, is only seeking to uh, move charges of um, assault uh, against that policewoman rather than attempted murder, which is what you get if you did it yourself with a high-pressure water jet or a boot uh, in someone's face. Uh, but the, the Dutch police union, as usual, is saying even this is rather irritating. I think that's the word they've actually used from sources I've seen, and it sends the wrong signal. So they're, they're living on another planet, that police federation, but they're not the only country where the police union is like that. Uh, and finally, I think from me in the, in the world section, uh, the Portuguese newspaper or online newspaper, Sapo, is reporting that uh, things are heating up in the Brazilian presidential election, of course, the same language, hence the enhanced interest in Portugal. So Lula da Silva, the Marxist, frankly, uh, former president, is getting very uh, fruity with his resident, the uh, current uh, serving president, Jair Bolsonaro, who, of course, has been against World Health Organization measures and many other things. And he's described him as being demon-possessed and of perpetrating genocide. Now, those who are watching with video might like to look at Lula on screen in that still and wonder whether he is perhaps a bit uh, demon possessed in his appearance. And the tweet that you've just brought on the screen embedded in that article has Lula on the 16th of August. So as I say, it's the first round of the presidential campaign coming up saying, quote, Bolsonaro is lying to the Christians. He is a Pharisee. He's deceiving people. He's lying to all the gods that there are. Um, I don't know how he gets away with it, uh, but perhaps because he has the support of global powers and it may be a sign that he's quite confident that he will unseat Bolsonaro in the coming elections. Yes, okay. Thanks for that, Alex. Uh, now, the RAF in a bit of trouble today. Uh, 
well, a couple of reasons. Uh, let's bring this one on screen first of all. This uh, uh, has been in the headlines the last couple of days uh, that uh, an RAF uh, rivet, joint, rivet joint is uh, the surveillance aircraft uh, operating in the Arctic. Uh, and uh, well, it got, what, what, what do we use? How do we describe this? Got caught. Uh, well, yeah, okay, it got caught, uh, apparently entering Russian airspace. So uh, it was buzzed by a Russian uh, plane. Now, this happens all the time, as you've mentioned many times, Brian, this type of close encounter between uh, opposing forces. But this time, the Russians are claiming that uh, the RAF uh, actually uh, operated inside Russian airspace, just inside Russian airspace. Uh, the UK has denied this, absolutely. The Ministry of Defence said that at no time did the aircraft uh, enter Russian airspace. Um, and they said that the Russian fighter made an unsafe close pass. Uh, so, but the, the, I thought what I thought was interesting about this was that the, the Russian language is getting a bit stronger because they call this action a deliberate provocation. And while we see headlines in the mail and so on about these types of, event, of events on a regular basis, uh, we haven't really seen official comment like that before. And I just thought that was a, a step for, uh, further than usual. Well, I, I've said several. I've said several times off the record that I can't understand how the Russians are remaining so calm uh, when, of course, they're facing weapons and munitions piled in by, by the West. Uh, but these are the aircraft, together with equi American equivalents, which are effectively providing the targeting information, allowing the Western systems, such as the HIMARS, to be used accurately against Western positions. So this is where it's very clear that Russia is not fighting Ukraine. Russia is fighting Ukraine plus NATO. And these aircraft are obviously going to the, uh, the absolute limits of their permitted airspace, trying to get as much information over the battlefield as possible. So, or, or, or wherever they are, but yes. I mean, they're, you know, there's, they're into surveillance of every part of Russia. And if you're collecting signals intelligence, of course, the range um, can be vast, so you don't have to be in close proximity to Ukraine even to get the information. Um, but something else that we've been talking about with respect to the military for quite some time, Brian has been hitting the headlines again and the RAF in trouble over this too, because uh, the headline in the Sky News this morning was uh, RAF pauses job offers for white men to meet impossible diversity targets. And this has apparently resulted in uh, a senior female uh, officer who it was the head of the uh, recruitment uh, for the RAF to resign in protest. Um, so this is quite a significant situation. Alex, isn't it that the RAF is not able to uh, recruit on the basis of merit? They're required to recruit on the basis of diversity. Uh, and where does that leave the RAF in terms of its capabilities? Hollowed out as the Royal Navy has already been hollowed out, I think is fair to say. And uh, already 15, 20 years ago, when I was uh, alongside servicemen at GCHQ, I was hearing uh, talk that the Royal Navy was getting too small for uh, anyone who wanted a career uh, path because they wouldn't be assured of promotion to mid-officer ships. The RAF seems to be going the same way, and it's uh, perhaps being helped along uh, by that strategy. But I'm afraid if we want to be quite frank about why it's not the army yet, the perception exists in certain quarters, as with the US Armed Forces, that the Air Force is not uh, a strength-heavy uh, role, with a few exceptions like the engineers. And so goes the thinking, uh, we can get away with dumping uh, women quotas there, uh, which of course is an insult to the qualified women as much as it is to the qualified men who get passed over. Yes. 
Yeah, well, I, I can't say any more hollowed out is the right word. Whilst we are at war with Russia, um, our government continues to hollow out the British armed forces. This is because they're aiming for a future where there is only a, a global um, military force. And the enemy at that stage will be the human being, where, whichever country you're in. Uh, so let's uh, look at uh, the move towards the global force because uh, NATO very excited that their new multinational uh, battle group in Bulgaria is uh, carrying out an exercise at the moment. This is uh, Platinum Lion 22, the biggest exercise yet for this particular battle group. Uh, it's in Bulgaria. Uh, it's completed this exercise, passing an important milestone as it uh, moves towards achieving uh, full operational status. That's not very good, is it? Where well, they they're struggling a bit, but it's probably pretty hot there, Mike, I have to say. Right, OK. I wasn't sure whether that was the result of their diversity <laughs> policy, but you, anyway. You don't know how long the boys have been on the on the go in some pretty hot conditions. So, But anyway, the point is uh, this battle group in Bulgaria was created following a decision by NATO uh, to reinforce the eastern part of the alliance following Russia's brutal and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and to help establish this battle group, the US Army's fourth security Force Assistance Brigade has spent time mentoring the 42nd Mechanized Battalion, uh, at, uh, helping them to learn how to operate in a multinational context. So uh, there you go. The only thing I'm going to say, of course, what they're not uh, able to train is against is uh, shelling on a scale that the Russians are employing in Ukraine. And this is the great weakness of these troops. They have no experience in, in a uh, battlefield environment where there is tremendous shelling. And, uh, uh, and I think that that was something that was clear from the footage that NATO released was it was very, it was quite a sterile environment. Yeah. There wasn't much going on around them. They were having a bit of fun, really. Well, OK, well, let's come over to the BBC and see what the BBC has been up to. Um, I picked on this article, which uh, when you start to read it appears fairly benign, but there's a lot more to it. Afghan contractors I wish I'd never worked for the UK government. Now, I'm labelling this as very devious and duplicitous reporting by the BBC. Let's see if I can explain why that's the case. Uh, but if we get into it, uh, people who were working, particularly in education, were saying this. We taught the culture of the United Kingdom and their values in Afghanistan. In addition to the English language, we also taught about equality, diversity and inclusion. According to their, that's the Taliban beliefs, it is out of Islam. It's unlawful. That's why they think we're criminals and we have to be punished. That's why we feel threatened. Alex, throw that straight back to you, because uh, what the people doing the teaching didn't understand is that what they were teaching was designed to break down culture uh, in, a, in Afghanistan. That's the whole purpose of bringing in particularly BBC type culture. Uh, it is to destroy communities, destroy the existing culture in Afghanistan and replace it with something completely different. Of course, that's its aim. And these British values, which uh, he so perfectly trips off, equality, diversity and inclusion, only were enunciated as such a maximum of 15 years ago. Uh, certainly by 2010, it was being heard of. And he's picked it up secondhand. Really? So he, he will, will not be aware of just the amount of deceitfulness involved that the values of, you might call it cultural Marxism or permanent revolution, were enshrined from um, central government level downwards, certainly by the Equality Act 2010. And now that phrase that's on everyone's lips has supplanted any previous British value. 
such as rationalism, common sense or decency. We don't yes, pe- have people teaching that in Afghanistan, do we? Uh, no, and I'd also say, and if it's upsetting, if the BBC standard of culture is upsetting the Taliban, it's upsetting me and a great many other people here in UK. Now, the gentleman who made the statement, we can't show a picture, but we just bring this up on screen uh, to complete the series, as it were, is a gentleman called Amar. Uh, he was working for the British Council as an English teacher. And of course, he, he is saying that what he's doing and I'm going to say unwittingly, is being used to seed um, an agenda which is designed to uh, break down Afghan culture. Uh, He goes on to say that they, so he's talking about the Taliban, took me to the police station asking about whether I'd work for a foreign government. Luckily, they didn't find any evidence in my home or on my phone. But I don't think it's the end. They're keeping an eye on me. So this individual is clearly suffering now as a result of being used for political purposes by Britain and the British Council. And then when they're in a vulnerable state, they've been abandoned by Britain and more or less left to a pretty uncertain fate in Afghanistan. So this is, this is I'm sure of words to describe this, Alex, because I think what the, what the British government is doing here and what the BBC is doing is outrageous, it's immoral, it is disgusting. These people are being put at risk as a result of the BBC and the British Council. Of course, and these are not formally arms of the British government, only de facto. So you can wriggle off the hook, at least by law, uh, when people have been used as agents of a certain agenda uh, and you're told you have a certain duty to them. Uh, Those who were interpreters for the armed forces, for example, have in most cases, with many wicked exceptions, been allowed to save their lives by coming to Britain, uh, where they suffer many further struggles. Uh, But those who were, shall we say, merely working for the soft power, for the NGO complex, the British Council and the BBC, uh, don't even get that small comfort. Yeah. Well, we'll follow it through because they had a a lady speaking, Maria. Uh, She said this, it was challenging for us. Some people had extremist thoughts and would often say, what you are teaching is unacceptable to us, to which I say I'm not surprised in the least. It's unacceptable here in UK, or a lot of it is. Everywhere we went, we were seen as representatives of the British government. Unfortunately, Mike, that's true. But these people simply didn't realise it. And she goes on to say, some thought of us as spies for the UK. But it's worse than that, because effectively, not only are they reporting back what they see in their own country, they're unknowingly uh, being used as subversives by the British government and the the, uh, BBC and the associated agents. Um, The article itself goes on to say the British Council relocated. uh, Sorry, this is a combination between the statement in the article and words from Nouria herself. The British Council relocated those who worked in the office, but left us behind. They didn't even tell us about the UK Foreign Office Afghan relocation assistance policy when it came out. So they're used and then they're betrayed by the UK government and the British Council. Absolutely disgusting. Uh, Another gentleman was working as a senior advisor on UK government projects. So this is hand in glove with the UK government. And the article says he showed us the BBC, a summons letter sent to his family home earlier this year from the Taliban's interior ministry, asking him to go to a police station for investigation. 
he's received three such letters. And Jafar says, I've been in hospital because of stress and, and shock. I can't sleep. The doctors give me strong medicines, but even those don't help much. My wife is also suffering from depression. I don't let my children go to school. I fear they may be recognized. So on top of everything else, we've now got mental health issues. That's further abuse as a result of the original abuse by the British government and its agents and the betrayal. Now, it's interesting that if we go to the British Council and we have a look through the trustees, I was not surprised to see that immediately we've got key individuals. This is Thomas Drew, not saying this gentleman's done anything wrong. I don't know what he's done wrong. But the fact he's Director General Defence and Intelligence of the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office must mean that the British Council is linked very closely with the, with the government's policies. Alex, you'll know this better than I, I will, but effectively the British Council is standing up and saying it's improving democracy in countries around the world, but actually it's got a very strong heart, which is closely linked, as we're seeing here, with British defence and intelligence. Often the way, Brian, this evening I'll be making the point that NATO as well says that one of its key benefits is that it is promoting and extending democracy in our countries. So it's a weapon being used as, again, again subversively against us to re-educate re us in our values. Uh, as for that uh, role that Thomas Drew has, I don't recall there being, uh, at, during my time, um, a foreign office department for defence and intelligence. There was one known as security policy, uh, but this is something that's all been rejigged uh, since 2010 or perhaps a bit later. So, so we can really summarise that, that by saying we're not saying anybody's doing anything wrong, but when you've got a title which is defence and intelligence, we'd like to know what's happening. But let's take another person. This is uh, Stevie Spring, the chairman of the British Council. And I was just stunned to find that she's also chairman of MIND. So when we see that these poor people in Afghanistan are suffering unbelievable stress and mental illness, um, did she take this into account before these people were employed on tasks with, which placed them absolutely in the spotlight for being accused of working with the British government? I tried to call the British Council this morning, but nobody's answering their phone lines. Apparently, they are all working from home in these very difficult times. But let's get back to the BBC because their articles uh, carry on. Here's from Kabul and beyond, a year of Taliban rule in Afghanistan. And what the BBC is busy doing here, of course, is stirring up trouble uh, by now saying that what, what is being uh, enacted as policy in Afghanistan is, of course, not in line with where the BBC would like to go. So two of their headlines, Kabul, where women are told to give their jobs to the men, and then star student, that's a, a lady shut out of class in Herat. Sorry, that, that first headline, Kabul, Kabul, where women are told to give their jobs to men. Yeah, so women, women who've already got a job are being yeah. asked to stand down. And men who haven't got a job are being asked, uh, are being encouraged to step forward to take the, the job over. But isn't but, that what the RAF's doing in the opposite <laughs> sense? Well, thank you, Mike. That's, that's very helpful because this might be an emotional one for somebody. But we've got to understand the culture of the country and the fact that I would guess that for many families, if the man doesn't have a job, the family doesn't survive at all. And I'm going to guess that maybe some of the women with the jobs are coming from educated families, so they're benefiting possibly from a dual income. But of course, the BBC is not going to do the research. 
And uh, this is where we can dig in deeper to see how it goes, because one of the journalists who created that article, uh, Lisa Doucet, if I pronounce that Lisa correct. Lisa Doucet. Yes. Are you sure about that? Positive. Okay, I, w I wouldn't want to make a mistake with Alex here. He's nodding wisely. Um, she's down as a BBC presenter and chief international correspondent. Canada is my, uh, my country, London is my city, but I'm at home in, in many places. So she's, a, she's a, effectively a globalist in my book. And a uh, little uh, interview here, we should have the clip where she's talking to a, a journalist. Let's see whether this one comes one, up, yes. here we are. And uh, we can just discuss it after we've listened to it. But you came back, how, easy, difficult, has, is it now for you to operate here as a journalist? Um, it's easier than I assumed it would be. Um, to be honest, you know, I've never felt that my job is to represent a government. I didn't represent the Islamic Republic. I don't represent the Islamic Emirate. I'm not here for political reasons, or I don't even really necessarily want to cover political issues. There's a humanitarian crisis here. That's the most important issue that needs to be covered, that people need to know about. My biggest fear is not necessarily for myself. My biggest fear is for the people that I interview. Often I worry that, you know, when, when I talk to people that it could get them in trouble. You know, a lot of times now you end up changing their names, but it's interesting, you kind of have this weird feeling that if I say like someone's name is Omar and I call them Bilal in, in Jalalabad or Mazar, if the wrong person gets in trouble. It's this weird sort of feeling and it's wanting to protect your sources. That's the most important thing for me. But it must weigh on your mind that journalists have gotten into trouble. Afghan journalists, they've been detained, they've been tortured. Media watchdogs talk about the abuses of Afghan of journalists. Uh, this can't be taken lightly. Absolutely not. And, you know, this is an issue that I've covered from when the Taliban first came to power. It's an issue that I track now. It's an issue I tracked when I was in Doha and in Turkey. And it is, you know, because as you said earlier, you know, thousands of journalists have lost their jobs. The one thing that was always amazing, you know, watching the Afghan media, whether you went to a TV station or a radio or whatever it was, it was all these young people in their 20s and their 30s, running, men and women, running these TV stations. You know, you and I have worked for big networks. It's not like that anywhere else in the world. You know, the BBC is not run by a bunch of 20-year-olds. Tolo and One TV were, and still are. And that, that's, that's an amazing, amazing thing to watch. Well, there we are. My point over this is where does the loyalty of this young man lie? Because clearly he's been completely groomed by, by the media organizations in the US. And now he's coming and he's reporting, uh, going to be reporting on, Af on matters in Afghanistan. Is he going to be reporting in an independent way or is he going to be reporting along the lines that he's been trained within the Western media system? So not criticizing him as an individual, but unwittingly, again, I think that he's been groomed by the West to produce the sort of media the West wants to hear. Am I being unfair on this, Alex? No, you're not being unfair because we've seen this in the post-Soviet space, Ukraine and Georgia notably, uh, and what he's saying towards the end here about uh, how amazing it is to have 20-somethings running TV channels. Well, um, without giving any, any secrets, uh, you and Mike and David, who run UK Column, None of you is in your 20s or even 30s anymore. And I think that was a conscious decision, wasn't it? That some men who actually knew something about the world should probably be responsible for the news output. 
uh, well, it seems to have some sense to it. But I just want to end this segment by reinforcing the dirty deeds of the BBC. Um, I came across this document, The Future of Media in Afghanistan. It was published in 2013. Uh, it's talking about Afghan media leaders uh, in a wider dialogue, a cons consultative dialogue amongst Afghan media leaders and journalists discussing the future of Afghan media promoted by the 2012 BBC Media Actions Policy Briefing, the media of Afghanistan, the challenges of transition. Well, who's deciding what Afghan media should transition from to, and would it possibly trans, uh, transition to something that disagreed with the BBC? I think the answer to that is, is going to be no. Uh, so in the conclusions and recommendations, there was strong endorsement by all participants that an inclusive and Afghan-led media dialogue was long overdue. But BBC Media Action is leading this. It's not the Afghan uh, um, people themselves. Uh, and it should be the first of many. So this is, this is BBC Media Action and the British government moving in to take control of the, uh, of the media in Afghanistan. And uh, here's a bit more detail on it. It says that the, the policy briefing entitled The Media of Afghanistan, The Challenge of Transition, echoes it. It explored the current state of the media in an environment marked by increased politicisation on the one hand and the diminished donor funding on the other. It concluded that unless a mechanism was put in place to ensure continued support for the international community, the Afghan media risked derailing the democratic transition underway rather than consolidating it. Uh, the arrogance is overwhelming here. Mike, I'm going to throw it back to you because, of course, uh, this is not building democracy. This is destroying uh, a country and its its culture and its community yeah. to replace it with a false democracy. Yeah, Alex talked about uh, Georgia and Ukraine. We shouldn't forget Syria either. BBC Media Action in there since 2004. And before we know it, there's a civil war going on. And then we've got uh, the UK mainstream press uh, using journalists from Syria that they trained uh, and then when they present them on the UK's media they present them as being some kind of independent local voice and they never acknowledge the fact that they were trained by the BBC in the first place. Yes well there's a lot more to be told on this but I'm sure the audience today gets the idea is the BBC to be trusted in UK? No. Is it to be trusted overseas? Certainly not. Well let's end uh, with Debbie. Um, Cheer us up a bit. We now have a, a minister for sewage and wastewater. Oh, I'm over the moon, like not. Because it turns out that this minister for water is my MP, who actually threatened. He delivered a threat from Chris Lachlan, the CEO of Pennon, who is Southwest Water's parent company. He delivered a threat direct from Southwest Water to me in my front room in front of Cornwall councillors and I'm going to be delighted because I'm going to be interviewing that Cornwall councillor in the very near future so that's one to look for so you know whilst I'm flooding and he got married in the chapel next door to me so he knows he knows what the situation's like so well we're we're flooding he's pretending to do something about it and he hasn't done anything about it he didn't even vote for the Lord's bill um, when, when that was put up, I mean, what can I say? We've got George Useless down here 
environment environment minister and now we've got steve double who really doesn't give a i'm not going to say the word because it's rude but it begins with s about anything he so it's like really <laughs> yes and and this <laughs> yes. one i i just found incredible most cornwall mps reject house of lords bid to end raw sewage in rivers and seas so most Cornwall MPs are voting to have more sewage in the rivers and the sea. Yeah, and the, 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 the headlines today were saying 50 beaches around the UK with a serious raw sewage problem. Yeah. And De but Debbie, the key point here is if we've got emptying reservoirs, that's largely to do with leaking pipes. Uh, this, what we're seeing here is, is infrastructure collapse in the country uh, more than anything else. This isn't climate change. This is... Uh, economic collapse and infrastructure collapse. Ab absolutely, one hundred million percent. Uh, they, Southwest Water don't even know where their infrastructure is. They haven't got a Scooby Doo. I had to map all their infrastructure, literally step by step, and I provided them with the map of their assets. And they're still to this day using my maps as our Cornwall Council. They don't even know where their assets are, let alone the fact that they're leaking, goodness knows, what is it, three billion litres of water a day? Not to mention chucking wastewater in our homes as well as the rivers and everywhere else. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> we're running out of time, Debbie, so we've got to be really quick on this final section. But are you going to get the job? I've asked Sue Davey. I, Sue Davey, who's the CEO of Pennon, who earned, I think it was 1.75 million or something obscene. Um, anyway, I, I emailed her direct and I said, me, 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 I'm a really good listener. But, you know, Southwest Water customers, they don't need a good listener. They need somebody that will actually listen to them and then act on what they're being told and take responsibility for problems that aren't the customer's fault. So I've got a really good experience on hydraulics, on how the water system works, wastewater, you name it. I think I'm 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 pretty much up for the job. Wouldn't I mean? How many customers uh, customers of Southwest Water would like to speak to me? Because I'll make sure that we take responsibility for our problems. Uh, it's well, only Debbie, fair, isn't it? Debbie, that's not a job you want. That's that's a punch bag, is what they're looking for there, and uh, they're looking to defuse, defuse. That is, uh, uh, you know, uh, community community angst yeah absolutely yeah actually mike i just want to interject very quickly there because that's such a such a good point because every time we get really upset with southwest water they send um southwest water managers who haven't got a clue of the history they're setting this person up for failure i mean honestly it's it's shocking the directors and the uh, ceos of all of these companies they sit back behind their their keyboards and they hammer out emails, but they're never actually here. But watch this space because I might have some news on that in the near future. Okay, thank you. Um, well, extra. Uh, are we going to do a meme at all just to end? Well, one one meme. I think Alex had a, had a couple here, but I, I think we should we should give our audience a meme to end the news. Uh, let's see which one will we do. Uh, let's do this one, uh, Alex. Uh, Finish, finish is, off. What cartoonist can possibly emulate Bob Moran? Uh, I think not for the first time he's been inspired by Mesoamerican uh, placation rituals. So the sun 
in this cartoon shining in the Central American sky is labelled this week's emergency. Uh, the priests ripping the heart out of the victim are labelled experts in inverted commas. And the victim, who until recently had a heart, but uh, the jade dagger has slipped in, uh, is labelled you. Yeah, brilliant. Says it all. OK, well, we, we had a lot there which we didn't have time to cover. We'll bring that into future UK column news. But uh, thank you all very much for joining us today. Thank you to our audience, wherever you are in the world. And for those that are close members for UK Columns, stay with us because we'll have an extra very shortly. Thank you.